the Mac Observer's Mac Geek App, episode 842, for Monday, November 9th, 2020. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, the show where you send in your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found. We take them all. We answer your questions. We offer some questions of our own sometimes even. Share your tips, share our tips, share our cool stuff found. The point is we put it all together. We mix it up into an agenda so that as we go through it, we can each learn at least five new things. That's right. Five new things. Every single time we get together, sponsors for this episode include Riedel at Riedel.com, Barebones Software with BBEdit at Barebones.com, and ExpressVPN.com slash MGG with their trusted server technology. Very cool stuff. We'll talk more about all of this, each of those, as we get further into the episode. For now, here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, this is John F. Braun. Hey, man. How are we uh, doing today? A little bit of summer in New England weather-wise lately, which is nice. Yes, unseasonably warm. Yeah, I'll take it. With uh, with you know, out the outdoors being a great place to be able to go, it's nice when it's warm. So, yep, that is good. You know what else is nice is we've got some quick tips here, Mister Braun. I think we can dive right into those. Uh, Matt will start us out, and uh, and Matt starts us by saying. That uh, I have a couple of USB drives strung off of my disk station to back things up like my Plex library. Since it's so huge, I needed more than one external drive, but my disk station only has two USB ports. Being smart, I figured I would just grab a USB hub, plug it in and use that. I happened to have a couple of USB three hubs and I tried those and drives would start backing up and then disappear. After doing a little Google foo, he says, it turns out. Synologies are only compatible with USB two hubs, which is easy enough because you can pick those up in any grocery store checkout for about three bucks. Now he says, so I grabbed one, plugged it in and have been happily backing up for weeks. He says, of course it's backing up at USB two speeds, but who cares? It works. So you're right. Some of the ports on the Synology are two versus three. And, um, and I, I, I think you're right about the hubs being limited to two, but, but like you said, you know, if you're, uh, if you're just backing up, the speeds are, I guess they're all right. So thanks for the, thanks for the heads up on that, Matt. Any thoughts on that, Mr. Braun? No, I, yeah, I, I think I have one of those too. And yeah, if I recall the, the USB ports on the front are, I think three and the ones on the back are two. For your model. Sure. Yeah, that's right. But they are different. Yes. That's yep. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. Hey, uh, a quick tip that I came across this week that I mentioned to members of my family and they looked at me like I had concocted a potion right before their eyes. We were talking about email addresses and wanting to give, well, I think one of them wanted to sign up for a free trial again of something. And they're like, Oh, so I just need to use a different email address. And I said, sure. Or you can use, you know, let's say it's, you know, our email here is feedback at com. I said, well, if you've already signed up with feedback at com, you could sign up with feedback plus new at com, And that's a new email address. And they said, what? And I'm like, right. Because if you use Gmail, any form of Gmail, Google apps for domains or just a regular Gmail account, 
uh, you can add plus whatever you want before the at sign in your email. And that will all go to the same account. Google will will just funnel it all there. Of course, you can put filters on it and and redirect it wherever you want. But it is a different email address, unless, of course, the service provider knows to look for that and then says, "Ah, oh, no, this is we've already had this email address. You know, you don't get to do that again. But so, uh, yeah, if your if your email address is my email at Gmail dot com, you could do my email plus new at Gmail dot com or you know, whatever you want, however, however you like to do that. So there you go. A little quick tip. I assume you knew about that one, John, right? Yeah. Never really used it, but yeah. Heard about it. Yeah. Well, years. it's handy for these types of things where it's like, oh, wait, I need to do a thing. And like, okay, you know, you're not thinking, you're not thinking about, oh, what, what other addresses do I have? It's like, let me just make up a new one. It's right there. It's good. You have a little anti-spam thing, don't you, John, for us? Yes, I do. So. If you were around in the pre-iCloud days, whatever they called it, dot me. Um, so I have three Apple addresses, dot Mac, dot iCloud, and dot me. So at Mac.com, at iCloud.com, at me.com, right? Right. Okay. <clears throat> Here's the problem. At some point, my dot iCloud address got out on the spam circuit, and that address, I don't use it. And I don't use the .me address, but there's no way to disable them as far as I know. And if there is, please let me know. Um, but yeah, it's, it's either all or nothing. And the thing is, I want that address. Right. So um, so I'm getting spam almost exclusively or exclusively at this iCloud.com address. Okay. And even though I tried training it, 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 it still gets through. So how to deal with this? Well, you could write a rule. But these guys are kind of tricky in that you can filter on a lot of things with rules in mail. And but they don't include the two address in the header. They mask it. Sure. So I can't filter on that. OK, but you can. So here's the secret is that that address is in there, but it's buried in one of the headers. Okay. What are you talking about, John? So step number one is that if you want to see all of the information about a piece of email within mail, you can go to uh, view message, show all headers or just all headers. And that will show you all of the headers. None was looking through and found the and I did find the header that had uh, my whatever dot iCloud address. Sure. So what you do, let me, let me, let me go back to mail here to bring it up. Is it, so it what you okay. Do is you can create a rule. Oh, come on, come on. Is it the delivered dash two header that you're looking for? Is that what it is? No. Okay. No. So the thing is there, there are some headers that you can filter on. Right. Um, this one was not in them. So you can say edit header list. And the, the one that I found that works, Dave, is original dash recipient. So what uh -huh. I did is I created a rule saying if original dash recipient contains RFC 822 semicolon whatever at iCloud.com, it just throws it in junk immediately. Nice. Which is exactly what I want because I don't use that address. And if anything arrives there, I wish I could just disable that address so they would just bounce. But but you can't. Again, I don't think there's a way to do that. Right. 
Right. I'm looking here. Yeah, because I, I know I've done this with Delivered Dash 2. Yeah, so I think if you're doing it with iCloud, Original Dash Recipient is the header that iCloud servers put out there. If you're doing this with Google, Delivered Dash 2 is the header mm-hmm. that uh, is put out there. Because I'm not seeing in iCloud, uh, I'm not seeing Original Dash Recipient when I look at the headers for mail that has come in to me. Not on my iCloud account, on a different account. So I think that's mm-hmm. that's the key. So, yeah, set it up. Well, I would set up, I mean, figure out which one looks for you. So ah, I like this. Yeah. Look in the headers, find the one that contains that buried address. And then, like you said, add that header to your headers list and then filter on it. I like it. It's good, man. It's good. Really good. Cool. All right. Well, fun stuff, man. Yeah. Keeps you. uh Spam free, spam less. We don't want to say spam free. So, Mm -hmm. okay. Jeremy brings us one. John says a quick tip for those that don't know about it, which is exactly what quick tips are pressing control and option and then clicking on the triangle next to a folder in the finder will expand or close that folder and all of the subfolders beneath it. It can be a wonderful thing or of course a curse depending on how much data you have yeah so you know you can twist open a folder by clicking that triangle if you hold control and option while you click on that triangle jeremy says you it will open or close everything which can be really handy yeah for sure i i always know that's possible i always forget and i have to like experiment by holding down different modifier keys so maybe next time i'll remember or maybe next time i'll do exactly what i've done but at least knowing it's available is the key so thanks, Jeremy. It's pretty good. Uh, any thoughts on that one, John, before we move on? Nope. Okay. So uh, I was talking with my son this week, and I have some advice for you all in the form of a quick tip. Check your digital couch cushions. And by that, I mean, you know, you could check your real couch cushions and, and or car seat cushions and see. I don't think we sit in car seats. That's weird. We sit in the seat in a car when we drive. but. We don't sit in a car seat. This is a whole different tangent. We're going to need to take ourselves on at some point, John, Uh, because I haven't sat in a car seat in years, at least not to my recollection. Anyway, when you check the cushions, you find money. Well, where, what about your digital couch cushions, right? What about your PayPal account, your Venmo account, your Apple pay cash account, your old Bitcoin wallet, right? All of these things at least if you're like me, you know, you, you have like a little amount in there that you, you know, maybe received or you spent and you didn't really think about it. And then you lose track of it if you're not using it regularly. And it can be kind of a nice thing to dig in there and find, hey, look, I've got, you know, 20 bucks here, 60 bucks there, $72 here. And holy crap, look what happened to my Bitcoin wallet since I looked at it four years ago. Like that can be a really nice little surprise if you happen to have one of those. So uh, so check your digital couch cushions as we head into, uh, especially as we head into the holiday season. It might make, uh, might make life a little bit easier, soften the blow a little bit as it were. So just don't forget to check your digital couch cushions. There's, there can be fun little things in there in the form of currency. So, you know. Or cryptocurrency, as the case may be. Pretty good, right, John? Yeah, I um, I use Mint.com. Okay. It, it doesn't get everything, but it gets most things. Interesting. Ah. You know, like I have it tied into my PayPal, and, and it, it will warn me 
um, if certain accounts are getting low, okay, which is nice. Oh. So it's like, hey, you have like under ten dollars in your checking account. You may sure. want to take care of that. You might want to deal with that. Yeah. A lot of banks, unless you have a big pile of dough with them, they're going to hit you with some sort of penalty or fee mm. if you don't have enough money. Sure, in account. So. Sure. Well, interesting, interesting, interesting. Yeah, that's pretty good. So Mint, if we if we mix this all together, Mint will aggregate your digital couch cushions for you. Oh, I like it. And it actually, and here's the cool part. So it will actually show your net worth, which is also mm. nice. So it basically takes your assets, which could be like your house and your savings and your stocks and your liabilities, like your mortgage, and does the math and says, hey, here's how much you're worth. And let's hope that that number is positive. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, the uh, I have a lot of thoughts about that. I, I, like having that number be positive isn't always a good thing. Um, if, if you're if you're well, then you file chapter 11, right? No, 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 no. Like if you owe more on your house than than you have, like th- there can be a like there can be nice write offs there. But anyway, um, uh, right. But but Quicken also does this. Quicken has done this for years. Mm. Um, and I know Quicken bought Mint years ago. But yeah, that 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 net worth graph can be a nice thing to see sort of over time. Uh, yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Uh, as Paul Franz in uh, the chat room at live.macgeekup.com says, bouncing balls are good. Bouncing checks are bad. Yeah, there you go. And Kenny in New Jersey says, Mint is cool, but personal capital is my favorite. So we will put a link to, uh, well, we'll put a link to Quicken and also to personal capital in the show notes there. Pretty good stuff. All right. Ah, this is good. See, I like this. I, I I knew talking about the digital couch cushions would get us uh, would net a in, an interesting conversation. So yeah, it's good. More on that. Time to move on. Yeah, I think we're good. Cool. All right. Uh, Doctor Mac has a cool stuff found sent in that that really ties into a quick tip that I wanted to share. But we will go first with Doctor Mac's cool stuff found. He says he's got two. In fact, first up, he says is text sniper, a terrific little program. I didn't know I needed until I started using it. It lets you capture text from any image and converts it into editable text via OCR. So you can paste it into any document or web form. For example, when someone sends me a picture of a receipt with a tracking number, I capture it with text sniper and then paste it into the tracking form. Slick. He says, I also love the way Tech Sniper helps me avoid typing or mistyping serial numbers. Now I just shoot a picture and Tech Sniper converts it instantly to editable text I can paste wherever I like. He says it certainly is a one trick pony, but it's trick. Instantly converting image text into editable or pasteable text saves me time, effort and mistakes. I was skeptical at first, but I found Tech Sniper useful more often than I ever expected. I love the use case with the serial number, these kinds of things. So, I mean, Dr. Mac, he obviously is a publisher, you know, writer, creator for a living. He understands the value of uh, an example to set, you know, these things in in stone. And I love it when uh, any of you folks, and in fact, most of you, when you send in your cool stuff found, you send it in because you're excited about how it helps with a certain purpose. And Dr. Mac, of course, has done that. Um, Your, your water bottle makes a lot of noise, John. Uh, and, and, uh, and so, yeah. So thank you for sending this in Dr. Mac number two paste. He says, that's the name of the utility moving right along. He says, I still don't understand why the Mac only has a single clipboard. And I've been using various utilities to extend the clips clipboards usefulness since time immemorial. My latest crush 
is called Paste. And it is everything I've wanted in a clipboard history slash manager and more. It does everything I need from a multiple clipboard manager standpoint, including the ability to save and recall every item copied or pasted for the past day, week, month, or forever. It also lets me organize items into pin boards, which like are like folders for saved clipboards. Uh, but there is a lot. Of, there are a lot of utilities that save multiple clipboards and have the ability to organize them. Paste stands out for its slick user interface and large, easy to distinguish previews. But the difference between Paste and most other clipboard utilities is real-time iCloud syncing. Why? Because it enables me to see and use every item I've cop or copied or cut on my Mac, on my iDevice, and vice versa. And so you'll see everything you've cut or copied on your iDevice on your Mac too. While both utilities are reasonably priced, Tech Sniper is six forty nine, Paste is ninety nine cents a month. He says I'd be remiss not to mention that they are both included with your Set App subscription. So if you have setup, you have these utilities already. And uh, so thank you for sending both of those through, Dr. Mac. That is super handy. Uh, I wanted to kind of extend that, the, the quick tip, and it, it's just perfect that Bob uh, sent in a clipboard manager. I was talking with someone this week because I'm always singing the praises of a clipboard manager. And it's one of those things. It's like, you know, it's similar to the question, why would I need 5G? Everything I do right now doesn't need any faster speeds or higher density devices or lower latency on my wireless connection. Right. And it's one of those things because you don't have it. You don't know why you might need it or we as a people don't have it. And so, you know, we aren't using the use cases of it. Well, with a clipboard manager, it's much easier, but it is the same kind of thing. People say, well, you know, I copy and I paste. What would I need a clipboard manager for? And it and it's a it's a valid question because. Unless you're using one, you won't have the use case to need one. It's simply how it works. And so I was trying to explain to someone what the what the beauty is of the clipboard manager. And and I will break my own rule here instead of giving a specific example, which I've given many times uh, or specific examples. I will zoom out and give sort of the meta example. And it is it gives me the freedom of non-destructive copying. Now, let's think about that. Every time with with the max normal clipboard, every time we hit copy or cut, whatever was on the clipboard is destroyed. So I would always be thinking, what did I have on the clipboard that I needed? Right. Why did I copy that to the clipboard? Why did I cut that to the clipboard? And am I going to need it? Do I need to go put it somewhere? So now with the clipboard history manager, I have the freedom of non-destructive copying. Every time I copy something. It's just putting it on the stack and, and and calling it a stack is mostly incorrect. Although there are some clipboard managers that work like stacks. Mostly it's just a history. And when you paste something, it doesn't pull it from the stack, but it is going into that history. And then you can go and say, Oh, I want to copy this. My favorite example to get specific is when I have a bunch of things in say an email or a note somewhere and then I, I need, or even a bunch of things on one web page that I need to enter or paste into another web page. It's really handy to be able to hit copy three times on one web page, move to the other, and then paste those three things in without having to flip flop back and forth till the day I die. So non-destructive copying. That's, that's my, that's my pitch for you all this week. So I don't know. Okay. Have you messed with paste yet or any clipboard history yet, John? <laughs> Uh, there's one that's part of that uh, uh, Golden Chaos, is it? Uh, mm -hmm. 
yeah, they, they have, uh, it's not enabled by default, but yeah, um, I don't use it too much, but yeah. every now and then. Yeah. Yeah. I, I recommend just having one that is there all the time so that, you know, you can be like, oh, wait, I can go back. You will find your own use cases is, is what I have found. Like once I, once I got my head in the game and I really have only been a clipboard, you know, multiple clipboard user for about what, maybe five or six years. Like it hasn't been that long. But yeah, it was one of those things. Once I started doing it, it was like, oh yeah, the freedom of just copy, copy, copy. And then like, okay, I need that thing. Where is it? You know? And I like the iCloud syncing idea. I sort of do that with, with keyboard maestro because it, it will sync to my other Macs. I won't get it for my iOS devices, but um, yeah, that's interesting. All right. Moving on with cool stuffs found Ian uh, says, uh, in terms of digital asset man- management, NeoFinder is an app that will trawl your hard drive or your external drives or your network attached storage drives and find all your media files, photos, movies, music, etc. It has the facility to create smart folders and groups of smart folders, albums, etc. It will sort by XIF info and many other options. Photos can be opened in your desired editor and saved back afterwards. With a business license, you can have your catalog shared across a network using any smart folders and our albums you've created. Since I have a Galaxy Note 9 with the PhotoSync app installed, also available for iOS, my photos automatically sync to my NAS and NeoFinder automatically updates its catalog on a daily schedule. So all my photos appear in NeoFinder. Photos complying with any smart folder criteria are automatically included. I'm afraid that after iPhoto and Aperture and struggle and the struggles with iCloud photos on my wife's iMac, I don't. I just don't trust Apple with my photos anymore. The app uh, NeoFinder is actively supported and I've had quick response from the developer when I've had a problem. Uh, so if you want to uh, there, yeah. And he sends us a link and all that good stuff, which of course we will put in the show notes. Thank you, Ian. Very cool stuff. I like it. I like it, John. I like media management. It's good. And things that manage automatically for us, which iCloud photo library does, but Ian had some troubles with it and wants to, Wants to keep it in house now. So, yeah. But but there's no reason this couldn't work alongside iCloud Photos, too, which is pretty cool. So, yeah. Good. Any uh, that trigger any thoughts or ideas? Nope. All right. Well, then we will keep moving on to Scott, uh, who says, I still own a sixth generation iPod Nano. It's the one that was the size of the iPod Shuffle, but with a touchscreen. I use it to play music and listen to local FM radio. It has better battery life than the iPhone, plus it's smaller, and I can just clip it to my garments for ease of carrying. I haven't used it for a while, and not since Apple dumped iTunes management for iDevices. With an opportunity to use it coming up, I plugged the Nano into my Catalina-running iMac. Not only did Catalina recognize the Nano, it remembered its automatic sync profile. I was also able to change the playlist to sync with the Nano. In other words, it just worked anyone with an older iDevice can continue to use it with catalina without getting caught that's pretty good scott i have an old nano and i have not plugged that in to uh to a mac in a while but now you've inspired me because you're right like that little clip thing is it it's not a bad thing of course with bluetooth headphones and an apple watch and like i mean they're there are functional replacements for this that arguably are more convenient even but if you don't have those and you have this, nice to know. 
that it still works and is still just as convenient. So that's pretty good. What do you think, man? Yeah, I think I recycled my uh, very old iPods. The oldest thing I have right now is an iPod Touch 6th generation, I think, which okay. only runs iOS 13. I think there's a 7th generation that'll run iOS 14. Okay. But, <clears throat> cool. But it did what I needed it to do, which which was to uh, record a, a video um, from my vehicle. And it does that wonderfully. Record a video? Oh, the iPod Touch. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Huh. Huh. Yeah. yeah, I had a need. Uh, I won't go into it. Yeah, I think you you, you remember the uh, incident yeah. here. But, yeah. Um, yeah, there was somebody messing with my car. And so um, I'm like, well, you know, let me run the iPod Touch. And uh, and I put it on my bracket um, yeah. that's, you know, on the windshield there. And, sure. And uh, turned it on, did what I had to do. When I came back, I had a video of uh, the person that was messing with my car, which is which was my goal. And for what you pay for it. And the video was, you know, good enough. Yeah. I don't know if it's HD on, on that one. Yeah. I don't, yeah. Right. But still, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Huh. I feel like there's, well, there's other ways to solve like a dash cam, a motion sensor activated dash cam might mm. be easier so that you're not having to like scrub through all of the video mm. to see, you know, to see when whatever happened and plus you probably save some battery life and, all of that too, but mm-hmm. yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's pretty good, pretty good. All right, uh, yeah. All right, uh, I think we got one last cool stuff found, which listener Jonathan says he says I was digging around and found a link to the Apple User Group resource and how to find an Apple User Group on Apple's own contacts website. He says I didn't think that these groups existed and that Apple still had the link to their website. And so he, he gave it to us, which is linked from apple.com slash contact. We'll put a link directly to their find a user group page. And yeah, user groups do exist. I wind up speaking at them uh, a few times a year. In fact, I think later this month in about 10 days from now, maybe. Uh, so next week, November 18th, I'm speaking at the Connecticut Mac users group about Plex, which I'm really excited to do. So, but it's, of course, it's because we're in pandemic times. I'm not going to Connecticut. I'm then uh, they're not attending a meeting in person either. Uh, I'm speaking remotely, which is not my favorite way to do user groups. I really do like being in person uh, when doing that kind of, you know, interaction, teaching, engagement kind of thing. But uh, right now we don't uh, get to do that. And so might as well do something on a Tuesday night. It's nice to hang out, you know, it really nice to hang out with fellow. It's like what we do here, you know, hang out with fellow Apple fans, technology fans, really. That's what it comes down to. So yeah, very cool. Nice find Jonathan. I like it. Any, uh, you're going to, you, you are welcome to join that one. Of course, John, the Connecticut, um, meeting that day. So I think it's the 18th oh. of November. So, so there you go. I think it's a zoom call. So you get to join from right where you are. I'll join from right where I am hmm. or, or wherever I am. I might do it from the office. I don't know. Connecticut, Connecticut Macintosh connection. I believe that is correct. Dogster in the chat room at uh, live.macgeekup.com. Fun, fun, fun stuff. All right. We have two tips left that I wanted to share, John, or that we all wanted to share. 
One comes from listener Joe, who takes us back uh, an episode or two. He says, I know you guys were talking about QuickTime Player and using it to trim videos and how convenient it was. He says, I'd like to point out QuickTime Player can trim. Also, it can split and rearrange sections of a video, sometimes without even needing to re-encode. For the no-encode cases, there is no generational loss of quality and the export is extremely fast. Trim is command T, split is command Y. He says split does not literally split the file, but marks a range in the clip, which you can delete or reposition. In a single pass, you can trim the head and the tail, cut out sections in the middle, rearrange sections, then export the result. It works on most common codecs, including ProRes RAW and HEVC files. There's some variation based on codec and procedure. Apparently, re-encode is needed when exporting trimmed HEVC files for some reason. Likewise, it appears re-encode is done if you both trim and split an H.264 in one session. So there's some things there, but that's pretty cool. He says trimming must be done before splitting. So the procedure is to do command T to trim the head and the tail, then use the JKL commands to navigate to the next edit point uh, and split with command Y, repeat as needed, then use the mouse to select, delete, or reposition the split segments in the timeline, then export. This is based on testing with Catalina 10.15.7. However, I believe I had these features before Mojave. And he's got a Mac most uh, tutorial about this. So we will, it's, a, it's on YouTube. So we will link to that tutorial in the show notes for sure. Wow. Thank you, Joe. That's really handy. And might, you know, I, um, for those of you that don't know, uh, I pre-record all the ad segments. Usually I, I don't always get to, but it is my preference to so that a, uh, I get the ad spots, right. But B, I can keep them nice and concise for all of you because our job is to essentially to whet your appetite, uh, for whatever our sponsors have not to sit here and, you know, review their stuff for 10 minutes. A, uh, that takes up too much time in the show and B, it, it probably causes you to lose interest. So, uh, so, but now that we've been doing video, I, I record the audio for the ads, trim that up nicely, then record video of usually either looking at the product or, or visiting the sponsor's website or whatever. Uh, but I'm feeling like knowing that QuickTime would do all this, I wonder if I could record the audio and the video all at the same time and then just chop it up in QuickTime instead of using an audio editor. So this is something I must think about, John. I don't know. It might save me time. It might make things more efficient, which we need, which is good. I love making things more efficient. I don't know. What do you think, John? Any thoughts on this? No. Okay. Well, where is my next one? I thought I had a thing about troubleshooting printers here, John. And I, I thought I did. Yeah, there it is. Um, oh, yeah. Two things about troubleshooting print. You know, we were talking about troubleshooting printers last week, John. And, uh, and there are two things I wanted to mention. I actually wound up having a conversation with our own John Martellero, who was having trouble with, uh, troubleshooting his HP printer after last week's HP certificate debacle, the, the repair of the certificate or the reinstation, uh, reinstantiation. I don't know, whatever it is, whatever was undone, uh, he was still not able to print and it was likely because of some of the troubleshooting that he wound up doing before that, which, you know, can kind of get you into trouble sometimes. Uh, especially when you're troubleshooting something and, you know, before we know what was happening or before we knew what was happening. 
So there's two steps. One we've talked about a lot on this show and is really super valuable. And that is if you're having trouble with your printers, go into system preferences, printers and scanners, and then right click in the uh, menu of or the list of printers on the left and choose reset printing system. So if you don't have a right mouse button, control click is is, of course, your friend uh, that will erase all of your printers and get you to where you might need to be in the end. So that uh, we found to be very helpful. And uh, you've done that a bunch too, John, right? The, the reset printing mm-hmm. system. Yeah, it's great. The other thing that's interesting is that there is a web interface for your printing system on your Mac. I know this seems weird, but it is at port 631, or at least it can be at port 631 on your Mac. So if you go to localhost colon 631 in Safari, you can usually bring up your web printing system, even though you don't have web printers. It's interesting, but it's just how you manage what's called CUPS, the common Unix printing service. Is that right, John? I know you're always good on something like those that. things. Yeah. Um, you can print test page from there. You can truly remove printers from there. You can do management that's a lot more granular than uh, than what you what you can usually do in the in the you know system uh, preferences print dialog. So it's worth checking that out. You might need to go to the terminal and enable the web interface with a command uh, cups ctl web interface equals yes i will put all of this in the show notes so that you don't have to uh, oh okay so you have to that's why it that. didn't work yeah yep yeah. that's usually the trick although it will often show you that so if it's not working from from there if it's not working initially there might be something else to it but um but yeah yeah. So it's also possible you don't have any cups printers running, but I think most of us do. Oh, so yeah. And I think I've got the port, right? Right. Cups printing port. Uh, yep. Did that do it? No, that works. Okay. There you cups. go. Two dot three dot one. So yeah. Okay. There you go. Yep. So it's an interesting little place and there's some things, of course you can dig around in there and break things if you like, but uh, you know, it's how it goes. It's fun. Right. Fun little geeky stuff. I like to share these little geeky tips. So if you're if you're having trouble with your printers and the the general reset doesn't do it, you can dig into cups and see if you might be able to see what's going on truly behind the scenes. It does have all kinds of print status and everything. It's pretty cool. So, yeah, I like it. All right, John. Well, uh, we have uh, in-house. I have been for the last almost week been testing the new Eero Pro 6 Wi-Fi mesh system that is Wi-Fi six based. And I have some things that I want to share about it. Uh, the first thing that I want to do, or in fact, the next thing, cause it wouldn't be the first thing. Cause we've already done the first thing cause the episode's already rolling. But the next thing that I want to do is talk about our sponsors for this week. Uh, if that works for you, Mr. Braun. Andy. All right. Let me ask you something. What if there was somebody out there who kept a log of every single thing you did every minute of the day? That would be pretty creepy, right? Well, what if I told you that's exactly what can happen every time you go online because your ISP, like Comcast or AT&T, is allowed to store logs of every website you've ever visited and can legally sell this data to anyone they choose? 
And this is why ExpressVPN is fantastic, because not only does ExpressVPN reroute your internet connection through their secure servers so that your provider can't see or log or sell this data, they route it through their trusted servers. We've talked about this before. It's one of my favorite things about ExpressVPN, in addition to the fact that it's like fast and easy and one click and all of that. But their trusted servers are cool because... They run off of RAM, meaning there is no place for their servers to store data permanently. If you switch off one of ExpressVPN servers and turn it back on again, it has no record of what happened the last time it was on. So they've engineered their entire system to not be able to track you. Not only do they not want to track you, they are not able to do it. So stop letting people keep logs of what you do online. Visit expressvbn.com slash MGG right now and find out how you can get three months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash MGG. One more time, expressvpn.com slash MGG to learn more. And our thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this episode. Next up is Riedel. At R-E-A-D-D-L-E dot com. Yeah, that's how you pronounce that. Riedel is a company that makes essential productivity apps, and they've had over 150 million downloads of their apps for both iOS and for Mac. Well, this week's likely to be a very important week for Apple users, and Riedel can't wait to bring their Mac apps to the new Apple Silicon. Spark lets you handle all your email accounts in a single place and collaborate on emails with your team. It is email built for the way things work today. And it's for Mac and iOS, right? So And Android, too, I think. Spark lets you take control of your inbox with intelligent email prioritization, noise reduction, and what they call the most advanced email tools at your disposal. PDF Expert from Riedel is the ultimate PDF editor that won App of the Year by Apple. And again, available for iPhone, iPad, and Mac OS. And Riedel knows how to build productivity apps, and you're going to want this stuff. Go check it out at Riedel, R-E-A-D-D-L-E dot com. And if you've seen their stuff before, go take a second look. They are constantly updating, enhancing, and making things that you and I are going to want to use. Our thanks to Riedel for sponsoring this episode. And now... BB Edit from barebones.com. BB Edit, there are so many great things to talk about with BB Edit. I use it every day. It's always difficult for me to choose which one or two things I might tell you about when we have the pleasure of having them as a sponsor as they are today. Well, today I want to talk about their Unix commands because. It's so often that we say, oh, you've got to go in the terminal and find this file and edit it on this show, right? This is part of how we solve problems. And then that leads into a discussion of, oh, do you use like VI or Nano or Pico or, and, or Emacs? You know, and we could have a holy war about that. But there is one editor to rule them all. And it is BB Edit because you can install BB Edit's command line tool. And then when you're in the terminal and you type BB Edit space file name, it opens in BB Edit. 
Not some VT100 emulated version of BB Edit. It opens in BB Edit, the graphical editor that lets you manipulate things with your keyboard and your mouse, you know, so you're not doing this like an animal. And it's fantastic. And when you hit save, it saves it because BB Edit edits text files. So it's a text file editor. It's just the best text file editor that I've ever found, and you can use it too. Go to barebones.com, download your free copy. Every feature is free for 30 days, and then it goes into a tiered thing where a lot of the features are free, probably the ones you'll need. But if you need something else, well, then you pay for it. It's relatively inexpensive, and you know, you're know you good to go. Our thanks to BB Edit and Barebones for sponsoring this episode. All right, John, we get to talk about Wi-Fi 6 again, which it seems is becoming a weekly topic. And I believe that's going to continue or at least a recurring topic. So, yeah, I've had the pleasure of checking out the Eero Pro 6 mesh system. I've got the it's a three unit system. Most homes, even as we found with, um, you know, with with prior mesh, uh, most homes probably do well with a two unit mesh. Uh, you know, I've got a weird setup here with the office across the driveway, but that allows me to do some long distance testing. Now, I want to point out the most, the thing that allowed Wi Fi mesh to happen in the first place is Wi Fi 5. Now, we didn't call it Wi Fi 5 at the time. We called it Wi Fi, we called it 802.11ac. And the, what that really did for us was it gave us high-speed backhaul to happen between the mesh points, right? So assuming you don't have Ethernet in your walls, you have, you know, your cable modem or your internet comes in somewhere, could be a cable modem, could be something else, then you plug that into your router, and then from there, you need other points throughout the house to help blanket the home and Wi-Fi. This is what Mesh does because you can do all of that blanketing in one interface and all of the devices know about each other. But in order for that to work, they need to be able to talk to each other reliably and quickly so that when your device connects to one over there, the backhaul to your router is going quickly and efficiently and without trouble. And that's what 802.11ac or as we now call it, Wi-Fi 5 did for us. And that's why Mesh was able to come into being. So. When we take Wi-Fi 6 with speeds that are much faster than Wi-Fi 5 and we apply that to the backhaul, things get really interesting. So, uh, I, you know, it, now I will say on the front hall, because the only client devices that I currently have that are Wi-Fi 6 capable are my iPhones 11 and later. Right. So we've got a few of those and we can test those in the house and it's great. And I will tell you. It's very good. Like I am getting, uh, I'm trying to, I mean, I'm looking at my, my lists here. Like I, I am routinely getting 850 megabits per second, both up and down, uh, in the same room as my, as my Wi-Fi six router. Now I'm testing this locally. I'm not letting the internet be involved in my speed test when I'm doing this because I want to test the speed of the Eros, not the speed or the speeds of anything. And, and I did this last week when we were talking about uh, the Deco Wi-Fi 6 uh, units too. Uh, the internet can slow things down. In fact, most of us have very, very slow upstreams compared to our downstream. So when I'm testing all this stuff, I'm just doing it locally using a program called iPerf that lets me t just test network speeds, which is great. And as an aside, put iPerf on your Synology, set up a little Docker container, put iPerf there, 
works great. And you've always got an iperf server running. So, yeah, so I'm easily getting, you know, I don't know that I've seen 900 megabits per second in my test, but I've definitely seen high eights. And most of the time upstream is faster than my downstream, John, believe it or not. Um, hmm. Yeah, I don't know why, but it's definitely true. So, um, but, you know, but I'm, I'm definitely getting that kind of thing. Now, where it gets really interesting is the backhaul between these. First of all, the only prior to, to this, the only Wi-Fi mesh that would give me any sort of consistent backhaul speeds across the driveway was Netgear's Orbi. And that's because the Orbi uh, was using a four by four radio in it and it, it would do fine. My driveway and the office are about 75 feet apart. I put my router kind of in the back of the office. So adding another 10, 15 feet to it. Uh, and of course, walls and all of those things. And most of my, my Wi-Fi meshes wouldn't really go through the walls of the house and the office and, and get to where it needed to be other than the Orbi. With the Eero, I am easily, easily getting, uh, I'm, I'm just looking here, single hop connections from the bedroom to the office, you know, 200 megabits per second across the driveway, consistent, like solid, low latency so already Wi-Fi 6 makes a huge difference there. So if you've got range issues between your mesh points, Wi-Fi 6 is really going to help. Uh, the double hop stuff, I'm still getting good connections across it all. Uh, very, like I said, very impressed with, with how well uh, the Wi-Fi 6 stuff works. And the nice part about this one is it's from Eero. So it comes with all the smarts that Eero has that not every Wi-Fi um, mesh has. You know, I've been, I've been, as you know, I've been very happy with your, there's basically two companies that make Wi-Fi mesh that, uh, that I find to be truly, uh, reliable and it's Eero and Plume and Plume does not have Wi-Fi six yet. So here you go. Here's the option. Right. And, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been working amazingly well. Uh, you know, like I said, the, the Wi-Fi backhaul blows me away. Having the Wi-Fi front hall be, you know, 800 megabits per second in the, you know, in the same room, maybe 10 feet away. Like, that's great. I don't know how much that matters for my phone. I'm very much looking forward to a laptop with that tech in it. Like, it'd be really nice if Apple were to release a laptop that had Wi-Fi 6 in it. Kind of, it seems crazy to me that yours doesn't have it. Like, why, why they're releasing phones with Wi-Fi 6 and not laptops is it's probably a supply chain thing, but still. You know, I don't know. Thoughts? What do you think, man? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I've been running some benchmarks because I think I'm going to be going Wi-Fi 6 pretty soon. Yeah. Um, I get 150 to 200 megabits per second throughout my house on the first generation arrow, which I think is good. Yeah, Wi-Fi 5? You mean through your house? Yeah. And are you, yes. are you testing? You're testing with iPerf? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Are do you find when you use iperf that your upstreams are often faster than your downstreams, or is that just me? Mm. I don't know. No. Okay. Interesting. I'll put a link. I'm assuming you're using the iOS iperf app. App is that right? Or are you just uh, doing this from your Hurricane Mac? Electric? Uh, no. On 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 the iPhone, I run the Hur Hurricane electric app which has iperf among a whole bunch of other things in it got it do we have do you have um 
does it have the ability to go in both directions with iperf because not every client i don't know and actually when you said that the thing is when i've run it i so i run i, I run iperf i run an iperf server on my mini okay sure in front of me yep and then i'll run the client and that reports a number for one direction sure right yep yep yeah, I haven't done the opposite. I, I I should look at that, though. I would expect the number would be the same, right? Oh, no, because the di different directions go different speeds for sure. So there is an hmm. iPerf app, and I thought it was free, but um, but I'm, I could be wrong. I got to check this now. Uh, I'm putting it in the show notes while we're while we're talking here, which is why I'm half distracted. But uh, yeah, okay. it's free. I put it in and it's really easy. It's the best of the Wi-Fi of the iPerf apps, client apps that I've used. You still yeah, need uh, to set up a server, but, um, mm -hmm. but it's free and it's really easy to say, I want to go upload or download. And you can say to go to for 10 seconds, you know, 30 seconds or even five minutes. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I, I was just ch testing, I guess the download speed. I right. think you were testing the upload speed. I think that's what iPerf oh. normally does. I think it, def I can't remember. I, it's, it's a weird thing. I, I have to, I'd have to mess with it again. And I don't want to um, go too crazy with that. Okay. While I'm, while I'm or podcasting run this here. client. I'll, I'll run this. Uh, yeah. Run this client. Yeah. I find this one to be really good. So um, yeah. And obviously the links in the show notes. So, but, but in terms of, connectivity reliability all of that good stuff there was a there was a weird firmware issue right up front but it uh, i mean i think i had this thing on like day negative one and uh and and then a firmware update came out that that solved there were some roaming issues but they are they are resolved for anyone that's getting it certainly after you're hearing this but even anybody that got it last week you you like that firmware was already available so um to to solve the roaming issues but uh but that, you know, that's kind of how mesh goes. It's, there's, there's always things to improve. And, and I, like I said before, I like what, you know, how dedicated Eero's team is to making sure that happens. But, but yeah, I'm getting like really good, like my average connections around the house with any in the office with my, you know, iPhone, um, what is it? 12 pro or whatever it is, uh, are on Wi-Fi six are, uh, like, you know, 500 to 600. Now, to be fair, my laptop wireless is like, we'll get four to 500 um, in most of those places. But that's like, that's the max that will do because that's what my Wi-Fi 5 max is out at. There is no seven, 800 for, uh, for, la you know, for the laptop because it just doesn't have that Wi-Fi 6. And I would, you know, for backups and things mm -hmm. like that, man, It'd be so good to not have to think, oh, I want to plug into Ethernet because Ethernet only gets me 940. Like, that's what I get with gigabit Ethernet. So to be able to get, you know, reliably, my laptop is usually in the two to 300 range, like you're finding, you know, to, to reliably get five, six, 700 megabits per second with my laptop mm -hmm. and not have to think about plugging in to do like the first round of a time machine backup or whatever. That'd be really nice. Or downloading software updates, those big monster Big Sur updates to just slurp them down. It'd be really nice. So mm -hmm. one can be hopeful, John, that maybe this week I'll be able to order a laptop with Wi-Fi 6 in it. That would be a good thing. So I don't mm. know. Yeah. Any other questions, thoughts about the, the Eero thing before we move on? Nope. I'm sure we'll talk more about it. Yeah. 
Cool. Uh, all right. You know, you had a question that came in, John, about buying a new MacBook Pro from listener Dave. You want to take us to that and uh, sort of roll with the yes. roll with the punches there? Cool. All right. So Dave writes in and says, I've been slammed at work for the past three months and haven't listen to almost any tech news and I'm way behind on the podcast, but trying to catch up because of that, I don't feel confident that I can answer this question without help. Well, we're here to help. Um, is there any critical reason why I should not buy a new 16 inch MacBook pro within the next couple of weeks? I know the hardware is moving to arm over the next couple of years, but I'm mostly wondering if there's some Mac hardware announcement that is imminent. Well, yes, there is. <laughs> yes, there is. That's right. Yeah. Next week. Um, and that I should definitely wait for um, I have the need to run some developer tools, including VirtualBox VMs, and the need to run Logic Pro 10 with a number of third-party effects and plugins. The concern for me is switching to ARM may delay or eliminate the use of virtual machines running x86 Linux and may delay or eliminate the use of third-party audio processing plugins. I'm okay with sitting with an Intel box for another six years. I just want to know if there is something about to happen that would make my purchasing of a 16 inch MacBook Pro now seem like a dumb move. Um, and here's my reply, Dave. Uh, since I purchased the new MacBook Pro 16 inch at the beginning of the year, uh, you know, here's my take on it. Um, when I was upgrading from my MacBook Pro 15 inch mid 2012, uh, the difference between that and this machine is just amazing. But then there's a seven year delta. Um, everything, the weight, the form factor, the speed, the battery life, the sound, the touch bar, integrated touch ID, and four USB, USB-C ports are, are great. The only downside about the newer machines, of course, is that unlike the 2012, nothing is easy, user serviceable. So you need to make the right choice regarding RAM and hard drive. I found 16 gigs of RAM and one terabyte SSD works for me. Um, and maybe for you too. The minor downside is that it is missing things I thought I would need, like dedicated ports versus USB-C dongles. But now that most of my lineup has USB-C, my mini, my MacBook Pro, and now my iPad Air, being able to use the adapters across the machines is pretty cool. Yeah. But I think his concern about virtualization and audio drivers are valid, especially with Big Sur coming up, because that's always an issue with... Um, Usually with uh, Apple major uh, updates is that it breaks the audio stuff. Yeah. Um, and also, um, even on Intel, due to updating the method of kernel extensions, there are things that won't work as you expect with Apple Silicon under Big Sur. So I'm planning to use this thing for probably six years, Dave. But um, I'm thinking he could probably get a good deal on the current MacBook Pro Intel in the refurb store. Yeah, especially like next week, because, you know, the show will release on Monday. So depending on when you listen, either tomorrow, today or yesterday, you know, the 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 new Apple laptops presumably are will be or have been announced if we you know, if we trust the rumor mill. And it sounds like we're going to get a, an air uh, and a, a 13 inch air and a 13 inch pro uh, are going to be you know, announced and released imminently. Uh, this will all be old news by the time most of you hear this, but the 16 inch version of the arm machine will, I think also it, like it appears to be coming soon. Now I, I would say for 
So I would not buy anything until Apple's announcement happens, even if you choose after the announcement to stick with Intel for this purchase. Uh, you will almost certainly be able to get a better deal either directly from Apple, either via the new store or the refurb store, or there are going to be lots of people looking to unload their relatively new and gently used 16 inch MacBooks Pro for the new Apple Silicon stuff, because there's a lot of, you know, generally the, you know, the, the power users, early adopters are the ones that are going to be doing this. However, for you specifically, listener Dave, uh, your concerns about virtualization and audio drivers are very, very good. And I think sticking with Intel and very specifically sticking with Catalina and not getting to Big Sur anytime soon is going to be really smart without breaking any specific confidences. I was having a conversation with uh, someone at a third party audio plugin company recently. Uh, it was sort of a not work conversation, but they're, Advice was you do not move your machine to Big Sur uh, un, for a while. You know, let the 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 kinks get ironed out by other people. Obviously, all of the major third party audio plugin people have been testing this stuff internally, but they also know that really the proof is in sort of the public pudding, where you've got multiple things interacting with each other. Audio is a very real time thing. So, Big Sur, no bueno for any of that. And and that's something I would have done regardless. I generally upgrade the machine in the studio here, John, like book just mm -hmm. before WWDC each year. So we've had, you know, six ish months of whatever OS is that. And sometimes not even that quickly. Like sometimes it'll be, you know, I'll lap myself with this machine, which is fine uh, because the yeah. audio stuff, the real time stuff is so finicky. Uh, so I take I take my time in upgrading this machine. I firmly believe that Big Sur will be required for any ARM based or Apple Silicon based Max, we should call it, uh, because it's not quite ARM. It's ish ARM ish. Right. Um, so. So, yeah, uh, it's ARM plus really is, is kind of the right way to think of Apple Silicon, I guess. So, yeah, I, I, I think for I think your advice is right for listener. Dave, I agree. Uh, stick with mm -hmm. Intel. But for everybody, yeah, he, he followed up. And he bought, he, he followed up and he bought my pitch um, okay. that for what he does, getting a MacBook Pro 16 inch running Catalina uh, works. And yeah. then, you know, if he wants to ease into Big Sur at some point um, and he can still run his virtualizations, which, um, yeah, again, that's a question mark now as to, well, I, I think it's not a question mark. I well, no, that is. Can will you be able to run a Windows virtual machine on the? Uh, yeah, on well, Apple Silicon. It, it I won't think the answer be, right now is, huh? It won't be virtual. <laughs> um, it it will be potentially emulated. Um, we know that right, you can. Right. He, but he specifically said he needs to run Linux virtual machines, and those we've already mm -hmm. seen. Right, oh, Apple showed yes. those at WWDC. Okay. So. Yeah, but but probably they were running, they were virtualizing an ARM version of Linux, not an Intel version of Linux, which isn't necessarily a problem. Right. But again, you know, eyes wide open, this might be a problem for you. So, but yeah, Windows, I mean, it's a, it's not Intel. So you would either be virtualizing a Windows, an ARM version of Windows, which is possible, available, and not entirely as capable as we would all want. Or 
you would have to emulate Windows and we don't like th- there's a big question mark there. Yeah. Day one. No, you're not going to be doing that unless we get some announcement mm-hmm. that we don't know about at the time that we're recording this. So but, uh, you know, this is very specific to listener Dave and and it, and good to talk about and good to identify. But for the rest of us. Uh, you know, not for me here in the studio, but for me here in the office, I would absolutely go to Apple Silicon on day one. I have no hesitation there whatsoever. Um, I've been running Big Sur on my laptop for a while here in prep for it coming out. And so we can talk to you folks about it and all of that. And it's been remarkably stable. I don't even think about the fact that I'm running Big Sur anymore, except sometimes it's like, oh, right. The menus are different. Oh, sure. Right. It's Big Sur. But other than that. I really like it. Um, and I would have zero hesitation and I intend to order some version of the laptop that will be announced this week for me. Um, if it were an iMac, I would order that too. And it would replace my iMac in the office. Like I, I am not fearful of what these machines, what the experience of using these machines will be like. Uh, it's not Apple's first rodeo with a hardware transition and it's not, um, it's also not a new platform for Apple. Remember our iPhones and iPads have been running Apple Silicon chips for mm-hmm. a long time. So I, I'm not, I'm really not concerned about it. Um, I, and I think I know Apple needed to shine this light here, right? They couldn't just start shipping Apple Silicon based Macs without saying something like that would be irresponsible for the reasons we talked about with listener Dave, but quite frankly, Most people do not need to care about what brand or style of chip is running in their devices. And the iPhone is perfect proof of that, right? The iPad is perfect proof of that. We geeks, we certainly know, oh, well, it's got the A14 chip. We're very excited about that. Look at all the things it'll let us do. But it's more about look at all the things it will let us do, not, ooh, the limitations of running you know, Apple Silicon versus Intel. Like, and I, I really don't think for those of us that are running, you know, mail and even word and pages and numbers and Safari and messages and the things that we do in Slack and, you know, the things that we do all day, I, like, I don't think it's going to matter what CPU mm-hmm. is in there. So, um, so I, 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 you know, but it is good to look at your use cases and, like Dave did here, identify. I'm sure Dave also uses Safari and Mail and you know Slack and all of those other things. And he's not worried about those, but he is worried about emulation and his third-party audio plugins as well. He mm-hmm. should be. So it is worth taking a look at your workflow and saying, okay, what if anything would I be giving up or potentially be in- inheriting a headache from doing this? And and like I said, he identified those, and it's good for all of us to do that. We're here for you. You know, like I said earlier in the show, feedback at MacGeekUp.com. Did you say feedback at MacGeekUp.com? Yeah, I did. We've said it many. I I, I love that we keep saying it. It's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Or premium at MacGeekUp.com if you are one of our premium contributors. We we love that, too. Where are we? Oh, we got time. Good. We've been through so much. This It's been so action-packed. I'm, like, surprised that we still have a little bit of time left. We could end this show now. Like, we could. Would you folks like an hour-long Mac Geek Cab or what we've sort of standardized on, the 90-minute Mac Geek Cab? And I will say that 15-plus years ago when we started this, it was a 45-minute show. That was our goal. Obviously, we, you know, didn't hold the reins all that tight. 
but it's because we have so much fun and you have so many questions. Speaking of which, Sam has a question for us. Sam's having some trouble with uh, with photos. Uh, Sam says, I'm currently using iCloud Photo Library and I have just over 70,000 photos. All my devices, iPhone, iPad, and Mac, are sent set to optimize storage for space purposes. So that means I currently do not have a full-res copy of my photos locally, and they are only stored in full-res on iCloud. I've heard of people's libraries getting corrupted for some reason or another, and that they have ended up losing all or some of their photos. I'm concerned that if anything was to happen to my photos on iCloud, I will lose all my pics. So therefore... I'm thinking of how to have a backup of all my photos in full res on my Drobo. Now, it doesn't say whether this is a direct attached or network attached Drobo. So we kind of have to, there's two, two very different paths. He says, so my question is, I'm trying to use the export command under the file menu of photos. I've tried the regular export as well as the export unmodified originals options. And I've also tried to do this in JPEG TIFF or PNG. However, every time I try this, I end up with errors. Error messages just say unknown error, followed by a number, either 4 or 256. And he attached a screenshot so we could see unknown error, 256. There you go. He says, so I'm basically able to see all the photos on iCloud, but I cannot export them. So I am concerned. Can you help, please? All right. So uh, you, you want me to start with this one, John? I know we both kind of use iCloud photos. I'm happy to start. Or if you've got thoughts, uh, you can you can jump in at any time. Um, the one th immediate thought that I had, Dave, um, <clears throat> so if you go into photos, uh, and you go to preferences, uh, let me bring it up. So let's see preferences, iCloud, there's a checkbox for iCloud photos. And it sounds like, um, we've done that. Right. Um, my one suggestion, and the thing is, this is how I'm set up. But one suggestion would be, uh, and then then you have two radio buttons below that. Download originals to this Mac, which is what I'm set up for. I think on all my machines, or optimize Mac storage, which sounds like that's what he's set up for right now. So a very simple suggestion would be to expand the disk space on one of your machines and switch to download originals mode if you if you can, if it's not too huge. Um, I think that's I think that's what he wants to do. Right. And and he doesn't say whether he has if this is a laptop or, a, you know, a, a desktop of some sort of Mac mini or an iMac. Um, I, I'm going to answer this, assuming it's a laptop that doesn't have enough internal storage for his whole photos library, because otherwise, like you said, that would be the answer is, you know, attach some. It needs to be direct attached storage. You cannot save your photo library directly to network storage and expect anything other than headaches. We've we've proven this here. We've we try regularly. We test it and it's a headache. So, yeah, if you can have direct attached permanently direct attached storage that is big enough, either internal or external to house your photos library, then what what like John's advice is exactly what you want to do. And it sounds like that's where listener Sam is aiming uh, but let's assume for the sake of argument that uh, that he or perhaps other listeners out there. Right. Uh, just the, as a benchmark, I have about 40,000 photos okay. in my library. Yep. And that takes up, I'm looking right now, uh, about 140 gigs. So in his case, you know, 
let, let's figure you'd probably need about 250 gigs to do right just off the top of my head. Yeah. That's a good estimate. Sure. So okay. you need 250 gigs of space on whatever local drives that you have. And if you don't, then we'll get your suggestion, Dave. Yeah, no, that, that, yeah, that, no, that's good advice. That's why I didn't want to just plow ahead here. This is interesting though, this audio problem. We've had this twice now. So, uh, okay. So assuming that it is a machine that can't have external storage direct attached full-time like a laptop and that there's not enough storage internal to deal with this. Right. Um, I've got a couple of ideas. Number one would be create a separate user account and connect that to the same iCloud account that you use, which is totally doable and set your photos library to be on a piece of direct attached storage, but one that only needs to be attached temporarily because hear me out Set it to download all originals, like John said, and only log into that account when you are somewhere where you can have it direct attached, even calendar that event. So, you know, every Saturday afternoon, you plug your machine in uh, to, you know, power and this drive or whatever it is. You log into this other account. You let it slurp down all the photos that you've taken in the last week. And now, boom, you've got this local copy. You eject the drive or you you log out of the account. You eject the drive from the other side, right from your normal account, and you're good to go. And so now you've got this account that's there slurping down your pictures full time. But you've also got your other account that is your portable account that only optimizes the storage locally as you're currently doing. You don't change anything else about that. And then that way, you've kind of got the best of both worlds. It's not perfect. But with one computer, it allows you to do this, right? So that, that's, that's certainly one way. The other way is to download them from iCloud.com slash photos. Um, now, you can only download 1,000 at a time. So this is going to be a bit of a painful process, but not terrible. Uh, the first thing I would say is, you know, if you're assuming you're using Safari to do this, set your Safari downloads location to this external drive because otherwise your downloads folder is going to get filled up very, very quickly. Uh, and then go to iCloud.com slash photos, go to the photos section of your library, or you can go to smart albums that you've created, which, you know, as you go forward might not be a bad thing um, and select the photos you want to download. And what's really cool, John command a in the iCloud photos web interface will select all of the photos, not just select the website which is cool. So it'll select all 70,000 of your photos. Then you click download and it'll tell you, you can only download a thousand, which is fine. Uh, the download icon is in the upper right. It's like a cloud with an arrow pointing down on the Safari or on the iCloud.com slash photos web interface. Wait for the download to complete, do the next thousand, do the next thousand. So, it, you know, not perfect. It, if you have that direct attached storage, I think creating the second user account is probably the simplest path here to making sure you've got everything. Um, so, and then, you know, if the time ever comes that you have larger storage internal to your, you know, you know a, internal to a future laptop or whatever, you can move that library in and then just point to it with any of your user accounts and you're good to go. So that, that's what I would do, but yeah, good stuff. I don't know. Fun. Any more thoughts on that, John, before we move on? No, I uh, think, I think we're good. Cool. All right. 
Um, listener Andrew, speaking of things like backups and such, listener Andrew says, quick question. I would like to take my 20, late 2013 MacBook Pro into Apple for a battery swap. I bought an almost identical 2015 MacBook Pro to use while this earlier one is being worked on. I can certainly clone the internal drive and install it on the new MacBook Pro so that everything would be the same. But I have many online services that sync to my Mac that I don't want to disturb, including things like Backblaze or Apple's photo library or Apple Notes or all of Dropbox, all of that stuff. Any suggestions for how I can avoid getting caught? Um, and he says, ideally, in the future, I would have this new MacBook Pro on standby by somehow running a carbon copy cloner clone or some other routine on a daily basis. But it all seems fraught with danger. So you're, this is interesting, right? Because we always talk about the value of having a clone uh, for exactly this purpose, right? Like something happens usually by surprise, but even, you know, intentionally to the machine we rely on every day. How do we go about using that clone? What happens when it's time to use that clone? Um, and what happens when it's time to use that clone temporarily? Uh, so that's, there's a couple ways to approach this, right? But one of us, so we should all make a list of the services that we would want to disable in this kind of restoring from a clone, but not really restoring scenario. Um, and the good thing is that, you know, two of the ones that you mentioned, Dropbox and Backblaze, do their ser perform their service based on the unique drive identifier. I think it's the UDID or it might be the UUID. I can't remember what drives have, but whatever that unique identifier is. They won't run if it's a different identifier. You have to sort of re-authenticate them to work. And so that's helpful, but that doesn't, it's not helpful for things like notes or things like that. But my question is, how bad is it if you run from your clone? Now, I know you don't want your clone, maybe you do want your clone backing up to, you know, backblaze and that sort of thing if you're running from it for a little while. Like, how bad is it? to have your clone syncing all these things, knowing that when your old machine comes back, you would copy the clone back to it. And maybe that's the part that's missing here is yes, you, you know, presumably when that computer comes back, it will not have been wiped. Right. But I think it should be wiped. I think if you're going to clone it and then use the clone, I think that new clone needs to be treated as at least your temporary master, and then when and so, you know, clone it and then wipe the machine before you send it into Apple so that you're not sending it in with any of your data or anything like that. That way they can test it and know that the problem is hardware, not software or whatever all that is. And then when that machine comes back, you clone from your new master to that computer and you're good to go. I, I think that's the right way to treat a clone here is start using the clone and then you're good to go. I have more thoughts on this, John, but do you have any before, before I, before I keep rambling here? Any no, thoughts? that's, that's pretty, pretty much what I do. Yeah. Right. Like it makes when sense to, to clone. Okay. Oh, so is that right? You, <clears throat> you just, you treated the clone as your new master in essence. Uh, for a while. And yeah. then, you know, if everything's dandy. Right. Right. And then you put it back. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's the right way to do it. And then that way you're not worried and you can just do what you want to do and, and leverage the benefits of having this clone that I has mean, it, that. It, it helped me diagnose this Evernote thing because what happened is when I booted from my clone, 
before it had upgraded to the newer version of the Evernote client, it would work on my clone. And that that actually is the that helped me diagnose the problem. Sure. I'm like, okay, well, why does it work on the clone and not work on this? Oh, because the version of Evernote is different. Right. Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Interesting. Yeah, okay. So the only other thing I can think of, John, and and I, you know, this is this is because I I have multiple machines here, right? Um, and I I started thinking, okay, what would I do? If I needed to send the office machine in for a repair, you know, similar to what what Andrew's talking about here. And I certainly have a clone of it uh, because every day that's what I do. But, you know, I could live and sometimes I do like sometimes I'll find myself here in the studio and just working for the day for whatever reason. You know, I've maybe finished recording a show. I see an email that needs my attention. And then suddenly, you know, three hours later, I'm still here. And it's because my email, my calendar, uh, you know, my FileMaker database that we use, Slack, messages, all of the things that I do in my daily life other than recording podcasts, which is very specific to this machine. Uh, But other than that, they're all kind of doable from any of my, you know, I, I, I live on three machines, which is amazing, right? But really it's two. It's the one in the office and it's this one here. And then the laptop is... That's why I put Big Sur on the laptop, because if something were to go terribly wrong, it's like I can deal with the laptop being limping in limp mode, you know, but I don't want either of these other machines in limp mode. But if one of them's gone, I could easily I probably wouldn't mess. I would clone the machine in the office for all the reasons we just talked about. So I could clone back when it came back and I had an easy path there. But I I don't like this machine is set up just fine to work from. And if there was some piece of data that only existed on the on the machine in the office and I needed it in those, you know, whatever, let's say a week where that machine was gone for repairs or whatever. Uh, well, I've got the clone and I've got a myriad different type of backups that I could go and like use to retrieve surgically retrieve that piece of data and then keep trucking. But again, because everything is sort of synced, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know that I would in that, position i don't know that i would use a clone in fact i definitely wouldn't if something like if the office imac like the power supply just died midday one day i would just get up and come up here that would be it and then i would just keep trucking along and then of course when i had time i would you know i'd I'd mourn the loss of the power supply and find a solution path but uh you know i think what i did the last time i had to send a machine in to get repaired yeah i would run off the clone but before i did that i would make a clone of the clone Smart. Or I would make two clones. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, that makes sense. Have the sense. one that's frozen. And then I would do my day-to-day stuff on, you know, the other clone until I got the machine back. And then typically, unless there was a reason not to, I would copy back yeah. the clone that I was using temporarily back to the main machine. And then everything was great. So. Yeah. 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 I think. Yeah. I, 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 I like, I like these paths. It's good. We got time for one more, John. You want to take us to Rob? I'll take us to Rob. Rob has a quick question here. Um, Not sure if you guys covered it yet, but what are your thoughts on the T2 chip exploit? It is my understanding it cannot be patched. Um, Do you think Intel units will see a fix? Rather scary, I think. What's he talking about? Yeah, what's he talking about? (laughs) Willis. A rerun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
All right. So I, so I did some digging on this because I, I heard mumblings of this, too. Um, uh, here's what I think is a good summary. Uh, it's an article over at Wired. And okay. the title of it is Apple's T2 security chip has an unfixable flaw. Oh, that's dun, like dun, a, dun. No, it, it, it's, that's right. it's it's kind of <laughs> accurate. Um, and they go into some detail, but basically what uh, to condense it, someone figured out a way to jailbreak a T2 chip and be able to either install new things. I think they mentioned you could play Doom on your touch bar. You could run Linux. But it also opened up the possibility of somebody disabling things like system integrity protection or getting your file vault keys, which is bad, bad. But here's the caveat. You know, I've done security for a while. And and the thing is, you got to put this in context. And here's the here's the paragraph in their article that puts this in, I think, important context. There are a few important limitations of the jailbreak, though, that keep this from being a full-blown security crisis. The first is that an attacker would need physical access to the target devices in order to exploit them. The tool can only run off of another device over USB. This means hackers cannot remotely mass infect every Mac that has a T2 chip. An attacker could jailbreak a target device and then disappear, but the compromise isn't persistent, and it ends when the T2 chip is rebooted. So as long as you make sure your Mac is in an environment where somebody could get physical access to your machine and ports, I think you should be okay. Uh, but it sounds like fixing the issue is not a simple matter of a software update. So, hmm. <clears throat> and I think he got back to me and he's like, well, if what, what if somebody does steal my machine and knows enough to run this exploit and they could get my data. And that's a valid concern. Uh, my suggestion would be in that case, you get something like find my, find my whatever, register your machine with it. Because when you register either your Mac OS or your iOS device with find my, um, there's two options uh, that I think are on every screen. And one is lock it. And the other is erase it. Hmm. Right. Yeah. So if somebody does run off with your machine, you know, get to another machine and, and you know, find your machine. I, I, I guess the only thing in that case is that it has to be connected to a network. So, um, but once it's on a network, uh, you should be able to control it and, and erase it. That's, that's pretty much why I got, what I got. Yeah. That's interesting. Huh? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Physical access. It's one of those things like I, I always operate that as soon as someone has physical access to my machine, they have access to my data. Um, It, it just kind of is how it goes. But I mean, I guess you could also encrypt anything that is truly knowing that this exploit exists with someone who potentially with someone who has physical access to your Mac, you could operate. If you need to operate, assuming that if someone gets physical access, I still don't want certain data to be accessible. You could put that in an encrypted disk image, uh, you know, mm-hmm. that that data. And then it doesn't matter if they unravel whatever you've got going on with your T2 chip. The, you know, the data in your encrypted disk image is effectively double encrypted, right? Because it's encrypted on your mm-hmm. drive. But then in order to access it. You've got to decrypt the disk image, and that is with your key. Don't store the key in your keychain, right, for obvious mm-hmm. reasons. Store it, you know, somewhere else. If you can keep it in your head reliably, that's the best place. 
but it's also the worst place, you know? So that, that would be, that would be where I'd go with this is, is that, um, you know, or it, depending on what the data is, you know, can you store it in, in a thing like one password or something like, is it, is it compartmentalizable enough that it could be stored in notes there? Mm-hmm. At the very least, the key to decrypt the disk image could be stored there. And, and that's outside of the realm of the T2 chip, but any of these things, you know, we always talk about security versus convenience and we choose our spots on the continuum there. The T2 chips offers a lot of security with a lot of convenience, but it's not perfect. And, you know, there you go. So because somebody like I have, I'm sure the key for my T2 chip is is massive. But all you need to know is the password for my Mac and you can get at all the data that it can see. So that, you know. That's the that's the the hole right there, and it's probably not good to tell you that the key for each of my Macs is exactly the same. So that would be bad. You definitely wouldn't want to go on like a podcast and and tell that to tens of thousands of people, John. I don't. I don't think. I think that'd be a bad idea. <laughs> uh, Kiwi Graham asked, "Does the T two chip give access to the keychain?" I I believe the answer there is no, but that's why I say that your keychain unlock password is the biggest hole that we all have because that opens both your entire, you know, well, it opens three things, your entire Mac. It lets you log in. It lets you unlock your keychain. And because of the first one, it, you know, gets you through whatever you've got going on with the T2 chip and the encryption. So like, that's the, that's the big hole there. I think. You know, because that's the kind of thing somebody could easily look over your shoulder and see you type and, you know, that sort of thing. So that's what mm-hmm. I got. I don't know, man. It's all uh, uh, another thing you may want to yeah. look at. I've run into this vendor. I, I should get one of these, but um, they do make secure external drive enclosures. True. They either have like a fingerprint or a pin or something. And if you don't enter it, you don't get at the data. Securedrive.com is the one company I run into that makes. Uh, okay. But look to be very nice in there. Uh, I think FIPS 140 dash, what is it these days? 140 dash two. Okay. Certified FIPS being federal information processing standards. And the last I worked on a device like this, one of the criteria for it is that if somebody tries to open it, it'll erase itself. Oh, wow. It was actually fun. I was working on, yeah, when, when I was doing the postal thing, we, uh, I had a project where I had to work on one of our secure devices um, that, you know, kept track of funds and stuff like that. And they were FIPS certified. What what they had was a security wrap. And the thing is, if you broke the security wrap, you broke the circuit and the device would erase itself. Oh, wow. Well, I'll, I'm sorry. All I can keep the, thinking about is is wanting to t- i'm not going to do this but wanting to title the episode john talks about the time he went postal it's just like it's i don't know why it's just swimming <laughs> in my head <laughs> uh <laughs> yeah yeah now we as developers had access to a special version that wouldn't do this because that would make development difficult if it kept erasing itself <laughs> yes, but, um, of course. yeah 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 huh that's pretty but cool there are a class of devices yeah, but there are, but there are a class of devices, uh, and it looks like they have even thumb drives. Yeah. Well, so right, right, right. So if you got, I mean, you could do what you suggested, but this is like the next step. Totally. You, oh you yeah. Certainly created an encrypted software vault. These are encrypted hardware vaults. Right. 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 That's pretty good. 
That's good. I love to see. I'm glad we went the extra 30 minutes. I mean, I know it's not extra, but you know, we talked about this a while ago. All right. Uh, it's time though, because we're now we're really near the end here. So mm-hmm. it's time to uh, bring the band in from jamming outside, which is the only place bands can really jam these days. So, you know, it's just how it goes. Pandemicing at all. Yeah. Uh, I've, been, I've been seeing in my, uh, in my feeds, uh, pictures of bands playing outside. I yeah. Mean, yeah. I got, I got one. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got one gig in on Friday night that was a truly last minute thing. Like I woke up Friday morning thinking I didn't have anything. And then, uh, Gary from our, our, from the wedding band actually texted me. He's like, you want, you guys want to play at the restaurant tonight outside? I'm like, yep, absolutely. So we got to do that. But, um, we, the way we do it is we make sure everybody, uh, that's on stage together has been, uh, COVID negative COVID tested within the past week. And we're all kind of laying low anyway, but that's how, that's how we get it done. And for, there was one guy that hadn't been tested. Thankfully I have a small stock of at home rapid tests. So we got him tested then we were able to jam out. So nothing's perfect, but you know, outdoors and all of that. Mm -hmm. It's good. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, that's what I got. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks everybody in the chat room at live.macgeekgab.com for being here with us, making sure everything goes smoothly. Uh, because sometimes things don't go smoothly and it's really helpful to have, uh, have you all here and, and tell us what we're, what we're missing and all that good stuff. It's good. I do want to thank everybody. I mentioned it earlier. Premium at macgeekgab.com is one of the perks that you get of being a Mac Geek Gab premium contributor. You can learn more about that at macgeekgab.com slash premium or simply macgeekgab.com will point you there too. It is not mandatory. Uh, it is appreciated. It is a part of what makes Mac Geek Gab work for us here. But I do want to take a minute and, or, and I do want to take a minute and thank all of you whose contributions have come in recently. So we have James from Melville. Thank you. Joseph from Marietta. Charles from Kobe. Gary from McKee's Rocks. Robert from Columbiana. Stephen from Plainfield. Barry from who knows where Barry is. I think Barry's been doing mm. some safe travel again, too. Uh, we've got Kenneth from Greenberg. Thomas from Chicago. Keith from Kirby Cross. Charles from Mechanicsburg. James from Charlotte. Richard from Salem. Robert from Clearwater, Stephen from Costa Mesa, Everett from Marina. I don't think you're in Marina. I think it's Everett from Denver. Uh, Olga from Bellevue, Lou from South Burlington, Jason from Charlestown, Scott from Columbia, Gary from Babylon, Paul from Fishers, Mark from Milford, Scott from Columbia, David from Nashville. I miss Nashville. Peter from Fort Myers, Robert from Paso Robles. Neil from West Hartford, Andrew from Bellingen, Lou from Albuquerque, Charles from Midlothian, Brian, I always feel like I'm talking about somewhere in Lord of the Rings when I say Midlothian, I love that, Uh, Brian from Ocean City, thank you to all of you, you all rock, whether or not you live in a place that sounds like it's from Lord of the Rings, you rock, we appreciate it, it's awesome. All right, you got anybody to thank, anything to to share before we... Before we play the the outro music, the true outro music, and, no. and make it all happen. All right. Well, 
We will see you next week. Thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks for visiting our sponsors, expressvpn.com slash MGG, Riedel.com, barebones.com, of course, our ongoing sponsors, smilesoftware.com slash podcast, maxsales.com, otherworld computing, linode.com slash MGG. Go sign up for what they've got, man. That deal's ending. 100 bucks. Thanks, everybody. Fun stuff. So wait a minute, John, you got us started. I, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I miss being together. We talked about a lot of like, you know, the, either gathering or not being able to gather. And so I am reminded fondly of one of the uh, last times we had the kind of the Mac geek Cab family together at Mac stock. And I, I think they have something to say, which is to say, we all have something to say, stay safe, enjoy yourselves. And what was it again? Don't get caught. That's right. Cool. See you next time. Made up.